I think that we really need to start doing justice to the specific experiences of people in, in all groups. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershaw, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we are professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. Transcripts of the show are available at journalism-history.org podcast. This episode is sponsored by the College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. For more than a century, the college has educated students to relentlessly pursue the art, science, and integrity of stories. They are committed to following First Amendment principles in a digital first environment as they prepare democracy's next generation. Groundbreaking moments for women in politics in recent years, along with the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, have spurred increased discussions about women's history and how we got to this point today. A new journalism history article explores gender, race, and place in newspaper coverage of women first after the 19th Amendment. The study builds upon historical research regarding newspaper coverage of women in politics by exploring how women of different races, ethnicities, and regions were written about after the 19th Amendment was ratified in 1920. One of the authors of this research, Tracy Luke of Iowa State University, joins us on the show today. Her research expands upon my own book, Press Portrayals of Women Politicians, 1870s to the 2000s. Tracy, welcome to the show. Why did you want to study how the media portrayed women in politics in the 1920s and 1930s? Well, 1920 was the year that the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified, which made it unconstitutional for states to restrict voting rights on the basis of sex. And as the suffrage centennial was approaching last year, um, my research partner and I were interested in the conversation surrounding it, particularly the impact uh, that the suffrage movement had, uh, as well as differences in the experiences of white women versus women of color. And what has prior research found as far as how women in politics at the state and local level are portrayed in media? Um, well, Terry, you wrote an excellent book about coverage of women in politics that I think we should definitely plug here. Um, and, you know, as you know, overall, scholarship shows that women in politics um, are subjected to very gendered stereotypes. Uh, women candidates tend to have stories written about them that focus on their families, their appearances, their personal lives, their personal attributes, their likability. Um, and ultimately, what this does is it sets up politics as a masculine domain and keeps femininity associated with domesticity, so other to the world of politics. So what the literature shows is that as women climb higher on the political ladder, so into national races, um, that this uh, treatment in the media is exacerbated. Um, it's a little more mixed for women at the state and local levels, but 
the gender divide is still there. Um, so I'm thinking here of a study of newspaper coverage of Nikki Haley, who was the first female governor of South Carolina. And that coverage initially portrayed her as a trailblazer, um, but then also criticized her for some of her feminine qualities, because as the thinking goes, femininity is really anathema to politics. But even later on, then she was subjected to criticism for being too masculine, which again, as the ideology goes, is unnatural for a woman. So it's a classic double bind, right, for women in politics. Um, so you see that throughout um, coverage of women in politics, you see journalists trying to make sense of women's fem femininity, um, but also their, their interest in being part of a world that has been gendered as masculine. Um, and I also want to note here that um, there are differences between how white women are covered versus how women of color are covered. And we know that from the important intersectional work that has been done by um, Kimberly Crenshaw, Bonnie, Bonnie Thornton-Dill, Ruth Zambrana. Um, but I, in particular, want to um, point out that it's been found that in congressional races, that women of color received less and more negative coverage than white women, than white men, um, and than men of color. So they're sort of um, doubly othered in that way. Yeah, I mean, I think what's so interesting about the research that both of us have done is, you know, we're both taking a historical look. And so people tend to think, well, that's history that's in the past. Um, and, and we're having to go around and tell people, no, like the same kind of coverage, the same kind of themes that we can date back to 1872 for sure are still playing out with women in politics today. This is still a problem over a century later. Absolutely. We are still seeing the echoes of these long-standing tropes and, and stereotypes, which I think um, emerged in this study that, that I did. And I want to pause and, and credit my co-author, Chelsea Davis, who is a graduate student here at Iowa State. Um, she um, worked on this study with me, so I want to give credit to her. Um, but yeah, absolutely. The findings um, that we came up with, we found very relevant within the context of the 2020 election. So for this particular study, who did you choose, choose to focus on and why? So when we looked at the literature on women in politics, a lot of it did tend to center white women and their experiences. And in part, that's because of how we define firsts, I think, um, and also because historically white women have had um, greater access to political power. So we thought it was really important to diversify um, our, our sample. So we, we specifically looked for women of different races and ethnicities in different parts of the country to try to capture how that coverage might have been similar and how it might have been different. So we took a map of the US um, that was divided into five distinct regions, um, the Southeast, the Northeast, the Midwest, the West, and the Southwest, 
And so we wanted to make sure each of those regions was represented in our study. Um, and then we, we scoured um, the resources of the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers um, and you know, other resources and looked for women who had achieved political milestones of various types so that we could have as diverse a group as possible. So what we ended up with, um, and I guess I will go maybe chronologically, starting with the first um, woman in our sample who was elected in 1922, and that was Soledad Chavez Chacon in New Mexico. She was the first woman elected to executive office in New Mexico and the first Latina in the U.S. to hold a statewide office. Um, she was eventually elected to the state legislature. Um, and I think it's important here, we were talking about how relevant these historical findings still are. And an interesting point is that in 2020, New Mexico elected all women of color to its U.S. House delegation. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, so then moving forward in 1924, Cora Reynolds Anderson was elected to the Michigan legislature. Um, and she was the first Native American woman to serve in any state legislature. She was a member of o Ojibwe Nation. Her father was white and her mother was Ojibwe. Um, she served for just one term. She lost her seat to redistricting. Um, and then also in 1924, Nellie Taylor Ross of Wyoming was elected and inaugurated as the first woman governor in the US. Um, Miriam Ferguson of Texas was also elected governor that year, but Nellie Taylor Ross was first to be inaugurated. So she gets to, um, she gets to make the claim uh, as the first you know, officially seated in that role. This is, you know, off topic, but I mean, the, the Miriam story is quite interesting in itself, I believe. Right, right. <laughs> with, with her husband right. and what was the, yeah, that, that's an interesting story for our listeners that we should get into in another show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I will leave that to you to, <laughs> to follow up on. Um, but it is interesting because um, for um, Nellie Ross and uh, for another woman I'll mention in a minute, um, their husbands do play a role in their political life because uh, Nellie Ross's husband was governor of Wyoming. And then she was elected after his death. So um, so I, I find that interesting because another woman that we studied, Hattie Wyatt Carraway of Arkansas, was in a similar position. Her husband was a U.S. senator and died in office, the governor of Arkansas appointed her to fill his seat because the governor had designs on the U.S. Senate seat and thought if he appointed Hattie Carraway, that there was no way that she would run in her own right and that the seat would then be open for him. But she did run and was and was elected. Um, and so she became the first uh, woman elected to the U.S. Senate in 1932, um, and she served for, for two terms. So she was um, representing the South. And then finally, um, Crystal Bird Fawcett of Pennsylvania, um, who was the first Black woman elected to any state legislature in the U.S., and she was elected in 1938 
from a district in West Philadelphia. So those were the five women that we studied. So throughout your analysis, you found three primary themes, erasure, marginalization, and selective uh, legitimation in local newspaper coverage of Native American, Hispanic, Black, and white women. So tell us what each of these themes means. So by erasure, um, we mean partial or complete omission of relevant aspects of a woman's identity or her political career. So broadly speaking, um, we can think of this as new co news coverage that simply ignores either entire candidates, and of course we didn't, um, you know, look at candidates who had been um, completely ignored by the media, but you can also think of it as, you know, um, journalists at work with a little eraser simply erasing part of a woman's identity. So for instance, Cora Reynolds Anderson, who was Ojibwe, um, her heritage was never mentioned, not once, not in a single article. Um, so that aspect of her identity was completely, completely omitted, um, leading to, you know, what we call erasure, right? Um, so then the second theme that we found was marginalization, which is a diminishment or decentering of women's work or political participation. So here, uh, newspaper writers you know, we're essentially saying, you know, we acknowledge this person's presence and maybe we acknowledge this part of her identity, but it is marginal to um, the world of politics. So it's, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a diminishment. It's a way of, um, you know, pushing, pushing women aside. As, as you pointed out in your book, Terry, and as we found as well, even in newspaper coverage that's positive, it can still be written in a way that treats women as exceptions to the norm, right? So that's that's what marginalization does. And then lastly, partial legitimation. Um, it was interesting to find that there were ways in which newspapers explained some women's success. And this, isn't something that um, that all women benefited from, but for some women, particularly the white women in our study, the newspapers found ways of explaining why it would make sense that they were in politics. Not that all women should be in politics, but it made sense that these individual women were in politics. And in that way, it gave them some partial legitimation, some partial validation. Um, you know, even when the overall discourse might be marginalizing women as a group. Walk us through the kind of coverage each of these women received uh, more specifically. So one of your findings that struck me was about Cora Reynolds Anderson and how one article wrote that Mrs. Anderson is not a politician and believes that if she were, she never would have been elected. So despite the fact that this woman was a state legislator, right, and that this kind of sentence would never be emphasized for a man. So, you know, what were some of the other key findings that you had? Right. Right. Yeah. For Anderson in particular, the coverage was um, 
was very focused on her domesticity, uh, portraying her as essentially a housewife. Um, yes, even defining her as not a politician, even though she clearly was a politician um, and had been involved in the Grange and in other um, community efforts. Um, you know, one of the other articles um, actually said, quote, the only woman member of the legislature today diverted the attention of the assembly from weighty matters of the state to house cleaning because her first uh, bill that she had introduced was um, a, a bill thanking the, um, the workers that kept the, you know, the state capital clean and, and functioning. Um, but I mean, very explicitly, the, the news coverage of her positioned her as an interloper, um, as someone encroaching on uh, what was rightfully the, the world of, of men. She was described as quiet, demure. Um, you know, articles pointed out that she didn't campaign on her own behalf, um, that others campaigned for her. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, they entirely erased her uh, Native American identity. You know, she had a teaching degree from the Haskell Institute in Kansas, which is now the Haskell Indian Nations University, and that was never once mentioned. Um, so in contrast, um, Soledad uh, Chavez Chacon um, did see her heritage mentioned in newspaper paper coverage there. She didn't receive a lot of coverage and neither did Cora Reynolds Anderson. Um, they, their coverage was, was pretty minimal. Um, but in Chacon's case, um, she was portrayed as the daughter of governors with uh, newspaper articles pointing out that she came from you know, a prestigious um, family whose leadership in that area dated back to Mexican rule. So you know, giving her some partial legitimation in terms of her family, still positioning her in relation to her family, which I think is important to point out, um, but you know, giving her a little more validation than Anderson had received up in Michigan. Um, coverage of Chacon also um, tended to focus on, you know, her appearance and and her personality. Um, let's see, Nellie Taylor Ross in Wyoming received abundant newspaper coverage um, as the first woman governor, you know, in the U.S. Um, or at least, you know, as Wyoming would you know, like to make that claim, right? Um, but she was presented as the little lady in the governor's chair. That was a quote from, from one of the newspaper articles. Um, she was treated as a test case, you know, for whether women as a whole um, could be trusted to lead. Um, you know, so the stories that, that we found about Ross just, you know, very much emphasized that she was outside of a woman's traditional sphere and sort of gave her a, you know, almost like a, treated her uh, election as, a, as if it were handed to her, that she was given a, a man-sized job. That was, um, that was a quote as well. Um, and she was defeated, um, defeated for re-election, but I will say about Ross, given that her husband had been governor, um, 
that there were more mentions of Wyoming's identity as a state. You know, it took a lot of pride in the fact that it had been the first territory to give women full voting rights. And it, it placed Ross within that tradition of progressivism. And so in a, you know, in a way they, they sort of made her symbolic of that kind of uh, regional mythology and, and that state's view of itself, which was similar to the coverage that Hattie Wyatt Carraway received in Arkansas. She was um, the woman who had um, won election to what the Senate seat that had been held by her husband. And she was very much um, legitimated as having been a spouse. I mean, the coverage of her was, again, very careful to say that she didn't consider herself a politician, um, you know, but she felt the call to continue her husband's work. Um, you know, there was an article about their, their old fashioned marriage um, and it really cast her in the tradition of white Southern womanhood. Um, she'd come from a Confederate family. Um, she'd, you know, raised three strapping boys um, you know, she was really treated as having embodied kind of that, that ideal. Um, one of the headlines even said that she, it, it said she was, um, of us, with us and for us. So very much positioning her as, as one of us, which again, partially validated her election and her representation. Arkansas also, the newspapers there took a lot of pride in the fact that they had been the first state to elect a, a woman as a U.S. Senator. So they're sort of claiming her in a way that Wyoming also sort of claimed Ross. Um, and that was different from um, the women of color in this study, and particularly Crystal Bird Fawcett of Pennsylvania, who also received abundant coverage. She received more coverage than any other woman in this study from the year before she was elected. She was a really influential lecturer. Um, she was active in the Democratic Party. Um, she had connections to the Roosevelt administration, but all of the coverage of her in the white newspapers of that state um, didn't just refer to her as a legislator or a woman legislator, but it was always a Negro woman legislator. They always linked her um, to the African-American community and made her um, seem as an exception. Um, so even in, in stories that were very positive, um, it very much set her up as, as you know, a, an outsider, um, as not the norm um, to the white male world of politics. Um, a lot of those stories also mentioned that she was born in Boston. So it was almost a you know, she was almost triply othered because she was um, an African-American, she was a woman, and she was from Boston. So, you know, she, she was very much um, treated as, as an outsider. Sorry, that was a long answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> I know. So, I mean, you've given us a really uh, pretty good overview already, but uh, do you have kind of a, a shorter summary of the key differences you saw in how the white women were covered versus the women of color? Yeah, I mean, I, I it was very clear from our findings that, um, that the white women were 
I've, I've used the word claimed, but they, you know, they were sort of treated as symbolic of a, a regional identity, um, providing them with, you know, a, a path to validation for their political presence that wasn't available for women of color. To a certain extent, um, we saw that for Soledad Chavez Chacon because of her Hispanic lineage, which in the specific politics of that state, um, you know, that that heritage was a source of political strength for her. Um, but, you know, I think this raises a really interesting point um, for scholars, which is, I think one thing that this study does is it shows why we need to move beyond the binary when we think about race um, in terms of thinking about, you know, white women versus women of color and, and sort of lumping all women of color into one category, right? Um, I think that we really need to start doing justice to the specific experiences of people in in all groups and looking at the nuances of those experiences. And I feel that um, that, that that emerged in, in this study, um, that, that place made a difference, um, that you know, women of different races and ethnicities had different experiences, um, you know, that white women had different experiences. And I really would love to see more literature start to tease out those nuances because I'm sure there was a lot here that Chelsea and I missed. And so I would love to see others continue this kind of work. So we touched upon this earlier, um, you know, and the, the power of the media is such that narrative tropes and stereotypes come to be accepted as common sense, which reinforces and perpetuates structural inequalities. And we've been seeing this happen since the 1800s already. And, you know, what's also important to note um, is that, of course, the media reflects the culture of the time, right? So this is a societal issue, not just a media issue. Um, at this, at the same time, in the case of Nellie Ross and virtually every woman in politics, you know, they have to present themselves as tough enough for the boys club, but feminine enough to still uphold uh, dated gender norms that they're still expected to, to, you know, enforce, um, which thereby boxes themselves into presenting these tropes and stereotypes themselves. So like, how do we get past this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is a really great question because in all of my research on women in the media, um, both in terms of how they are represented, but also in terms of women who have sought a public presence for themselves, I have found that women themselves um, are very careful to present themselves in alignment with, you know, prevailing ideologies that will help gain them approval, that will help them achieve the kind of influence um, that they want to have. And, you know, I'll mention here that um, my first book was about a woman named Sylvia Porter, who was um, a personal finance journalist, the first person to write about personal finance journalism. And she had this career over 60 some years and really sought that kind of, you know, prominent public presence. And I was able to see how she changed 
the way that she crafted her image over time to try to adhere to changing norms and ideas related to gender. So I think it is really important for us to recognize that women themselves exercise some agency in how they craft their own images. Um, because of that, I put the onus on the storytellers, on us as journalists, because it, you know, a political advertisement is, is one thing. You know, if a candidate is trying to um, be voted into office, obviously that candidate is going to use whatever discourses and tools they have at their disposal. Men do this too, right? In terms of presenting, a, um, you know, an image of masculinity that will, you know, be appealing and will help them get elected. And I do think it's the job of the storytellers to resist these stereotypes. I mean, the stereotype is the easy story to tell. It's the story that gets told over and over and over. Um, I think that the onus is on the storytellers to look for different stories to tell, to look for ways um, to, I don't know, to to break some of the molds that that have been so fixed for so much time. I also, and this is just, you know, me getting on a soapbox, but as, <laughs> as part of this project of uh, reform, I would love to see political journalism get away from a focus on personalities and horse race coverage. And I would like to see um, more solutions journalism. I would like to see an emphasis on policies and the potential impact of those policies. Um, in a way that would maybe decenter, um, you know, a, a candidate's image, and maybe that that could help. Um, but I'm with you that it is. This has been going on for a very long time, and and it really does need to change because it's holding us back, um, you know, as as a society and as a country. And then our final question of the show is, why does journalism history matter? That is also an excellent question. Um, and I guess for me, I see journalism history as offering a lens through which we can examine knowledge, storytelling, and power, sort of the intersection of those three things. Um, and by power, I mean economic power, political power, cultural power. Um, I think, you know, as a historian, examining those things, you know, who knew what, what knowledge was available, what was being communicated, um, two, who was telling which stories and how were those stories being told, and then three, who benefited from the way that those stories were told. I think it helps us understand why things are the way they are. Um, and I think it helps explain both how things change and also how some things, um, you know, seem resistant to change as we've been talking about. Um, but that's my take on it. Those, that's, that's what really fascinates me about journalism history. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. 
Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at jhistoryjournal. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Fenneman, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night, and good luck. Good night.